welcome back to Dr. Crow's Art Show. As you can hear, I am joined again by my co-host, Luca, the blue and gold macaw. And he is very happy to be here. Yes, he is. Hi, Luca. Thanks for being my co-host today. Today, our bird topic is very close to both of our hearts, because for the first time on The Bird Show, we're going to be talking about half the species in our own flock, Blue and gold macaws. <laughs> it's you, buddy. <laughs> blue and gold macaws are also known as blue and yellow macaws in some circles. They inhabit the forest, woodland, and savanna habitats of tropical South America. You are a wild jungle bird. They reach a length of 30 to 34 inches. And they can weigh two to three pounds, which I'm going to let you know, doing the bird show and holding up all these birds all the time, they get pretty heavy. So I can attest to that, that uh, Luca may even weigh, what, 3.5? How dare I? <laughs> they can live from 30 to 35 years in the wild, but in captivity, they do tend to live a little bit longer if they're given the right diet exercise and all of that and they're known to live regularly to the age of 60. Yeah, pretty old. Luca here is around the same age as me. We're both in our mid-30s uh, as far as I know, although I don't know his exact hatch date because he has been rehomed a couple times in his life unfortunately. So while they do live up to 60 in captivity, I did read somewhere in the internet, although I'm not sure the quality of the source overall, but it said a female blue and gold macaw named Charlie is reported to have hatched in 1899 and, accordingly, in 2011 celebrated her 112th birthday. She is said to have once belonged to Winston Churchill. This blue and gold macaw has gained fame for her anti-Nazi cursing. Blue and yellow, or blue and gold macaws, are fairly prevalent still in the wild, fortunately, and this is despite quite a bit of deforestation and capture for the pet trade. One of the recipes to their success is that they're not specialists in terms of their diet. There are some macaw species who will only eat like a certain type of nut in the forest or something like that that they rely heavily on for most of their calories. Whereas blue and gold macaws will eat any kind of variety of fruits, nuts, insects, um, things like that that they find in the rainforest. With that being said, they aren't completely free from our impact on the natural environment. They are on the verge of being extirpated in Paraguay, but they're still pretty common for large parts of mainland South America. Good for you, buddy. I'm glad that you have some extended family out there who's still flying free. So now it's finally time to talk bird tales. Bird tales. For today's bird tales, I'm going to tell you some stories about Luca here, as well as Cheyenne, which is another blue and gold macaw, who is technically my sister since she still lives with my mom. Luca, as I had mentioned, has been rehomed a couple times in his life. He actually was living at my mom's place for a while, and before that, he lived with a guy who had had him, I'm assuming, up until that point, uh, although I'm not really sure if Luca had had anyone else in his life before that 
I mentioned how long blue and golden macaws tend to live, up to 60 years. And so a lot of people don't really realize what kind of a commitment they're getting themselves into when they get one of these fine feathered friends. Blue and gold macaws require quite a bit of space. They make quite a bit of noise. They definitely make a ginormous mess. And who could really blame them? If you think about what their habitat is like in the rainforest, they're basically doing their jobs. A bird's job in the rainforest is to spread seeds, to create mulch for the rainforest floor, and to propagate and congregate and socialize with others of their same species. Hence, the ear-piercing shrieks that we call flock calls, which are the parrot's way of getting back in touch with each other if, say, one of them flies too far away and they're no longer able to see each other. They'll basically scream across the rainforest and become reunited. It's very nice. In Luca's case, what happened was that this young man basically had a change in life circumstances. So they do live so long that a lot of things happen in that time. And he had met a young lady, they had fallen in love, started a family, and Luca here was not necessarily compatible with their vision of what all of that was going to entail. And they may have also felt that they just didn't have the time that he needed in order to feel happy. So they had seen a picture of my mother in a local newspaper with Cheyenne, who I'd mentioned earlier, my sister. And Cheyenne is a female, whereas Luca here is a male. So they thought, of course, a male and a female macaw would make the best of friends. They asked my mom if she would take a custodianship of my friend Luca here. They got along okay at first until kind of a little bit of a love triangle started happening. Macaws tend to mate for life and they reach sexual maturity, at least blue and gold macaws do, around the age of five or six. Since Cheyenne was already far past that age and had already bonded with my mom, she didn't really welcome Luca into wide open wings. She was very skeptical of him, probably even, I would say, frightened of him at first since she was so used to humans. She had never seen another blue and gold macaw. Her identity was probably more informed by her relationship with my mother than it was her interactions with any other fellow macaws. Well, Luca felt differently. He was instantly in love with Cheyenne. Poor guy. He is a hopeless romantic. They do tend to mate for life, but if faced with a situation where their original mate doesn't ever come back or something like that, I would assume that they assume the mate has passed away and that's why they can't come back. And so they will eventually, in some cases, bond with someone else, but it can take a really long time. And some don't ever really get over that initial heartbreak of losing that first person or bird that they were bonded to. Well, Luca here is quite the Lothario. He didn't take much time at all to decide that Cheyenne was the most beautiful bird that he had ever seen. Meanwhile, Cheyenne was not too keen on him, and this put my mom in a strange position as sort of the third person in the love triangle. Of course, there was strain on her relationship with Luca, there was strain on her relationship with Cheyenne, so at some point it just was not feasible. Nobody was happy in the situation. Everybody was frustrated, like Luca is with my subpar petting right now. That's why he's growling at me. Sorry, buddy, I'm distracted. I'm telling your story. Yeah. 
I'll do better. I'm sorry. Here, let this ear scratch. It's pretty good, huh? So uh, my mom eventually asked me if it would be okay if Luca came over here. Now, I know what kind of a commitment I was getting myself into, having known Cheyenne since I was a teenager myself. It was definitely a last resort situation. I didn't necessarily need or want another bird in my life. Don't listen to this part, Luca. But now that he's here, of course I love him, and I'm very glad that he's part of our flock. And he's adapted quite nicely, which is saying a lot. Because Luca, he may look like this handsome, put-together guy. And he is. He is. But he does have a few things underneath the surface that provide challenges for him. For example, Luca had come to us with a broken left wing, which is good in some ways in that he can go outside and he doesn't need to have his wings clipped and that sort of thing. Although I'm sure that he has some pain in it sometimes. And I'm sure that he would prefer to have both wings functioning. But from the human perspective, there are some quote unquote conveniences. But a bigger issue stemming from this initial accident or whatever it was, I don't know what happened to him to break his wing. He seems to have gotten some sort of traumatic brain injury or something like that on that side of his head because... Luca has seizures sometimes. When he first came to live with us, they were really, really bad. They would happen sometimes even every couple weeks, and he'd take a really long time to pull out of it. What happens to Luca during a seizure is he, well, it can kind of be different, but he tends to hold out his working wing, which is his right wing, and he extends it as far as he possibly can, and then his right fists will clench up, which is what makes me think that the seizures are starting in the left hemisphere, since that controls the right side of your body. And then he's pretty much paralyzed. Sometimes he vomits, sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he screams, sometimes he doesn't, but his pupils are dilated and he's obviously like not all there and can't really control his body. We've gotten a lot better with diet. We've um, gotten him some fruits and vegetables. We make sure he gets enough calcium, enough protein, and all that good stuff just to keep his neurotransmitters firing properly. He also needs quite a bit of rest. He likes lights to be turned off and on at certain times of the day, and sometimes if I mess up and turn on the wrong lamp, I can inadvertently trigger a seizure, which leaves me feeling really guilty and him feeling really dazed. So it's kind of a bummer, but we're definitely working through it, and I'm happy to say that his seizures are fewer and fewer than they ever have been ever before. One of the things that I would recommend if you ever have a situation where you have a special needs parrot or maybe even a parrot that was previously healthy and is starting to have seizures is, first of all, you should go to your vet just to make sure there's not some bigger underlying issue going on. Second of all, do look at diet. That's one of the biggest triggers. High salt or something like that is a big no-no. It can definitely trigger his episodes. Even if he has like too much corn or something like that, considered to be a high-energy food, that can trigger his seizures. Changes in routine. Other than that, I've really noticed when we've been building our relationship, it's really helped me support him. And that's been helping us more than anything else. So sometimes I'll hold him during his seizure. I'll say his name. I've noticed that if I say his name, that he comes out of it a lot faster and his recovery time can be a lot faster as well. How do I know that his recovery time is faster based off what I'm doing? I take copious notes. I've been noting the time and the date 
and also the duration of his seizures, what else was going on in our house around that time. Just because when he first came to me, I didn't even understand what was going on at first. That was definitely the scientist in me that was saying, okay, I need to see if there's a pattern here. And that's one of the ways that we've established a better routine that works for us, which is not to say that he never gets them now, but they are much more rare. And now we have a few techniques that at least sometimes work to kind of pull them out of it a little bit faster. So that's a really good thing. So my next bird tale today is actually going to be uh, kind of a funny story. And this is about my sister, Cheyenne. Cheyenne did not like me at all when she was going through her terrible twos. And I think almost anyone who's met a young macaw will tell you, they definitely go through a phase right before puberty, similar to how humans do, where they can just be out of control. You haven't really established some of the boundaries that you can establish later. Cheyenne definitely had a phase that I'm just going to call her terrible twos. Cheyenne would look at my feet from across the entire house, let alone the living room, and she would look and see if I was wearing shoes. And if I wasn't wearing shoes, she could tell even if I was just wearing socks, she would immediately run down her cage as quickly as possible and try to bite my toes. When she got a little bit older, I would say she was probably mm, getting closer to five, six, seven. I was probably about 10 or so when she first came to live with us. Though by this point, I was in my mid to late teens. I figured out a few ways to get to her heart. Of course, they all involved giving her things that were probably not very good for her diet, which now that we know about Luca's situation, in hindsight was not too wise or kind. But it definitely worked because some parrots, the path to their heart is their stomach, just like some people. And she started being a lot nicer to me until she met my husband. Then she decided I was the main obstacle in her way of true love and that she and my husband should flock together for the rest of their days. And I immediately became the thing in the way of her romantic ambitions. is isn't the first time that's happened with my husband, by the way. Gurr, the son Conyer, who has hosted a previous episode, she also just totally forgot me the minute that she met him. So this all culminated one day when I was visiting my mother and I was taking a shower in her house and no one was really around. Cheyenne, I guess her cage was open, but it's often open, so I didn't think anything about it. And Cheyenne decided that was the day that she was going to sneak into the bathroom and trap me in the shower. So both Cheyenne and Luca will tell on themselves. They'll say, you know, ah, ah, no, no, like right before or during something that they know that they're not supposed to be doing. Imagine being in the shower. It was actually kind of frightening hearing some maniacal chuckles on the other side of the shower curtain, only to realize that you were suddenly being held hostage by a tiny blue shark parrot. She was patrolling the bathroom floor. When I would try <laughs> to get out, she would run and lunge towards my feet. Meanwhile, I was trying to wait her out. She was trying to wait me out. She was destroying all of the toilet paper, just ripping it. You think cats are bad, parrots are terrible. And I had to wait until my mom got home and yell for her to help and rescue me. 
this is what it came to. And this is not like that long ago. This is not ancient history. This was, I think, 2010, 10 years ago. This is ridiculous. So Cheyenne and I have a multifaceted, multi-layered relationship. And uh, yeah, she's quite the character. And she's the one that first taught me what I know about blue and gold macaws that I've used to build my relationship here with Luca. That took a while too. When he first moved here, of course, he was heartbroken again because he not only lost his original dude, he lost the love of his life, Cheyenne. And now he had to settle for this new flock of crows. He was really kind of angry for a little while. He definitely wanted to bite people's faces. But blue and golds are usually single person birds. Like they don't tend to really be too nice to the rest of the people in a family once they've chosen their person. I thought for sure, given my husband's history with birds, that Luca would choose him right away, especially since Luca was originally bonded to a guy. But here we are. Luca and I hit it off. It took probably six months before I would trust him enough to put my finger in his beak. But I would say that initial leap into trust, and that took a lot of feeling out and hanging out and singing songs first, mind you. That was the first thing that really showed him that I was willing to put myself out there to connect with him. And from there, it really pretty much blossomed. So yeah, that's a little bit of uh, my macaw experience. Hopefully you enjoyed bird tales. But now it's time to move on to the flocking news. The flocking news. So I realized that a lot of us are not only here because we love birds, but maybe we also want to be distracted by everything that's going on in the world right now. It's a pretty crazy time and not really what I envisioned when I had first planned the date of launch for this podcast. I'm glad that we're here as a distraction so that you can take a bird break from all of the bad news. But at this juncture, it would be a little bit like ignoring the elephant in the room if we didn't make the connection between COVID-19 and the wildlife trade. The wildlife trade is what brought beautiful individuals like Luca into our lives. And while there is a lot of joy in those relationships and even funny times, as you heard with my bird shark experience, we have to also realize that they wouldn't be in our lives in the first place if they weren't first taken from their own homes at some point, if not them, then their parents or their parents' parents or one of their ancestors. You know, there's definitely two sides to every coin. So today's flocking news article is called COVID-19 pandemic puts illegal wildlife trade in the spotlight. This was published on March 23rd at phys.org, P-H-Y-S dot org. While hundreds of millions currently feel the effects of this virus, just a few months ago, the crisis was brewing in the body of just one human, and before that, in a non-human. The virus is thought most likely to have originated in a bat and passed to a human through another, and thus far undetermined, species. The outbreak is thought to have originated in a so-called wet market in Wuhan. Wet markets are markets where live and dead animals, domestic and wild, are sold, with some freshly slaughtered on site. This has drawn public attention to the risks posed by illegal and unregulated wildlife trade in which multiple species are transported from around the region for human consumption, providing perfect conditions for the emergence of new viruses. In recent weeks and months, both China and Vietnam have put into effect more bans on the wildlife trade that's going on there. 
And I've just recently read that, unfortunately, the ripple effect of that is that a lot of it has gone online into black markets, at least as far as China's concerned. I'm not as familiar with what's happening in Vietnam. The article does go on to say, while developments in China and Vietnam towards clamping down on illegal wildlife trade are undoubtedly positive steps, it should be noted that conditions in wet markets themselves are not unique transfer points for novel and deadly viruses. Animal rearing and handling practices the world over have been responsible for the zoonotic transmission of disease. So that brings us into this crazy situation where, Luca, I mean, you and I just hanging out, we could get the bird flu or something. Luckily, with COVID-19, there's no indication that it's actually transmitted between birds and people. That's a blessing. But as we do know, bird flu was another big pandemic that did come through. So if there's one thing that I hope that we learn from the situation that all of us are going through, and I got to tell you, a lot of the macaws at home are probably kind of happy about having all of their people work from home. But it raises the issue of what are they even doing in our homes in the first place? And that brings me to a bird of advice. A bird of advice. As much as I love to have Luca in my home, a part of me wishes that there are ways for us to be in relationship with animals while they are still wild. We talked about Knook the Crow in our first episode. I know there's a gal who goes by the name of the Magpie Whisperer who has made friends with a bunch of magpies in Australia. And these are wild magpies. These aren't ones that we're taking from their habitat into ours and trying to basically force our cultures upon them. As I mentioned with Cheyenne, she was in some ways more human than bird, at least when it came to her identity and her ability to relate to others and who she saw as a conspecific, the same species as her. I mean, furthermore, we get frustrated at them for doing the things that they're supposed to do in the wild, and we get frustrated with ourselves when we don't have the time and space. Luca, his left wing is broken, so... I don't have the burden of having to provide for him enough space to fly. If he was able to fly, at that point, I would be building an aviary that was as many meters long as I could possibly make it so that he could get enough exercise. But even that is nowhere near the miles and miles that they would fly in just one day if they were in the rainforest. We can't recreate what they need as much as we think we can. We can have the best diets, we can have the best science, we can have the best avian veterinarians, but when it comes down to it, the situation as far as what I can tell in terms of ethics and what we're learning about animal intelligence, sentience, and animal souls, I'm not so sure that it can be justified as sustainable or equitable. And I realize that I'm also part of that problem and part of that puzzle. And it's complicated and there's no one singular right answer. And now that we do have all these birds in captivity, what are we gonna do? Some of them are forming the genetic basis for reintroduction efforts. In some cases, there's fewer of the species remaining in the wild than there are in captivity. It's definitely morally ambiguous. While there's not really much we can do about those who we already have in captivity, I think it's important that we limit breeding potentially to just those kinds of conservation efforts. 
so that it's not a perpetuating problem. There's a lot of parrots like Luca who have been rehomed not once, not twice, sometimes even dozens of times. I've even heard of cases where they're euthanized because no one can find a home. Sometimes people set them free, which is in effect the same thing, only more cruel because it takes longer. There is no one good answer, but I think the first step is becoming more aware about the situation, being honest with ourselves and with each other about the situation. And then I think an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So yeah, in a nutshell, my bird of advice is let's leave wild birds wild. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here and joining us for another week of The Bird Show. We'll see you again next week, and until then, have a flocking good time. Two Doctor Crow's Bird Show.